Hello and welcome to this special edition of the PJ Pod, brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's official journal. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the PJ Pod. As usual, this time of year, we're taking a look back at the biggest headlines to hit pharmacy land from the past 12 months, while showcasing some of our favorite podcast moments. As you can probably guess, we're once again gathered at PJHQ for our festive roundup, Mince Pies in Hand. As an added bonus this year, we have a few journalists on the team who are making their podcast debut today. Welcome. (laughs) I'll introduce you all properly as we go along. So for our new podcasters and for all you listeners, here's what's going to happen. Tell us. I'll ask each of our reporters to recap some of the biggest events and stories from the mag, and then we'll put them on the spot and get their 2024 predictions. Oh, no. (laughs) It'll be okay. Okay, let's start with the biggest story we covered this year, and probably the past several years, the introduction of a National Pharmacy First service in England. Community pharmacists already take referrals from a range of minor conditions, such as diarrhea, vomiting, and conjunctivitis. But with our Pharmacy First approach, we can go further still. We will invest up to £645 million over the next two years, so pharmacists can supply prescription-only medicines for common conditions, like ear pain, UTIs and sore throats, without requiring a prescription from a GP. That was former Health Secretary Steve Barkley speaking about it in May this year, which was around the time that Tammy Lovell joined the team. Hi, Tammy. Hi. Tell us, what progress was made with Pharmacy First in England since Steve Barkley made that speech? Well, it wasn't until November that it was announced that the service will start on 31st of January 2024. Wow, that's soon, isn't it? Not much time to prepare. Yes, that's going to be a quick turnaround for pharmacists. So that took ages, but at least the service is well and truly on its way now. Are pharmacists happy? They do seem to be. Janet Morrison, the CEO of Community Pharmacy England, said this was the biggest development for community pharmacy in England in the past decade. Yes, wow. So pharmacists will be paid £1,000 per month for providing the service, plus £15 per consultation. And pharmacies which sign up to the service before the end of January 2024 can claim a one-off early bonus payment of £2,000. Pharmacy First also seems to have been the final push needed to give pharmacists read-write access to GP records. Tacey Aputi, chair of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's English Pharmacy Board, said this was a long time coming and a welcome development. Yeah, we've been writing about that for years. Yes, we? we have, yeah. I seem to remember there were some unanswered questions around how Pharmacy First will work alongside the NHS Community Pharmacist Consultation Service. What do we know now? What we know now is that the CPCS will form part of the Pharmacy First service. So in total, the service will include the supply of urgent repeat medicines and referrals from other NHS providers for minor illnesses, and now also the ability for a pharmacist to provide treatments for seven of those minor ailments. So patients will be able to be referred through CPCS as usual and can now also walk into a pharmacy for treatment for those seven conditions. Sounds like all good news. Mostly, yes. But there's a concern about the timing of this announcement. Pharmacy First will start during the height of winter pressures for the NHS and setting up a service isn't easy. 
So it's important that pharmacists are supported as they gear up for the potential influx of patients through their doors. Yeah, it's a really busy period for pharmacists, isn't it, over Christmas? Yeah, it's no small undertaking. There are 23 patient group directions to follow for the service. For any pharmacists looking to take part, the PJ actually has some resources on minor ailments that they might find informative. We'll link to them in the show notes. Excellent, good idea. Do we know yet how many pharmacies might offer Pharmacy First? We don't have exact figures on this yet, but CPS said it will be similar to the number offering the CPCS, which it says is the vast majority of pharmacies. Right, okay. I think it's safe to assume that pharmacists will be keen to take part so they can access a share of that additional funding that's attached. It's been a challenging year for the sector financially. It has, and we've seen more and more pharmacies close down as a result. Yes, official NHS figures published in October revealed that although 297 community pharmacies opened in 2022-23, to 388 closed, resulting in a net loss of 91 across England. And this looks set to continue with Boots announcing in June that it's closing 300 pharmacies over the next year. Several heads of pharmacy trade bodies said at the Pharmacy Show conference this year that the next six months will be all about survival for many contractors. So some strong words. Yes, even Lloyd's Pharmacy fell victim to the financial constraints this year, announcing in November that it sold all of its 1,054 high street pharmacies and closed 237 pharmacies in Sainsbury's stores. That's a huge change for the pharmacy market, isn't it? And presumably all these closures aren't doing anything for reducing health inequalities where pharmacists can have a massive impact. Yeah, sadly not. Which reminds me of a great episode that listeners might remember if they stretch their minds back all the way to January, where he went to meet one pharmacist doing his bit to tackle inequalities by stationing himself in the pub. How do we get those patients to engage with us? How do we understand their experiences? And by coming in here, unsurprisingly, we found quite a lot of our male patients were here and but then it was part of their culture you know it's this is where they hang out with their friends so by being in the environment you actually have joined the watering hole as well you're part of that group and you're then understanding what are those barriers you know health education certainly part of the great Addy williams there talking about his blood pressure check service at a pub in bristol we should do more pj pod episodes in the pub shouldn't we we'll see (laughs) okay so as ever I'll be asking all of you to make predictions for 2024. Tammy, kick us off with yours. Well, I can quite confidently say that we'll see a new contract for community pharmacy next year because that's when the five-year deal agreed in July 2019 comes to an end. And I'd say it's a pretty safe bet to predict a one-year contract this time round, given the timing with the general election looming. I like your confidence, Tammy. Is there anything else? Also, we should see the independent Pathfinders programme finally getting underway in community pharmacies. This will be the first nationally funded service to allow pharmacists to use their prescribing qualifications. Up to 210 pharmacies across England are going to be Pathfinder sites, but there have been delays up to now because of concerns that the funding from NHS England will leave pharmacists out of pocket. That will be another game changer for community pharmacy in England, certainly. I'd say so. Thank you for that glimpse into the future, Tammy. We'll see if you're right. Thanks, Carolyn. Speaking of prescribing, our most recent PJ Pod episode explored the experiences of three pharmacists who took prescribing courses this year. I do think I've come an awful long way from the beginning of the course. It has been extremely hard work. I'm now recording this post uh, exam and I think it all went okay. It is a bit scary 
completing the exam when you know that the pass mark is so high. Um, so, so I'm just going to open my email now. Just two seconds. Whoa, it says, oh gosh, congratulations. I'm writing to let you know that you have provisionally passed the independent prescribing course. A wonderful result, great work. Oh, this is amazing. A fascinating insight into independent prescribing there from our senior features editor, Don Connolly. Hi, Don. Hi, Carolyn. Yeah, that's right. So we followed three pharmacists for over a year as they did their IP training and afterwards to see if they passed and how they plan to use their qualification. How did they find the IP course? I think it's fair to say that they found that it was a lot of work, but it was all worth it in the end. There were definitely some universal stumbling blocks, though, such as funding, finding a designated prescribing practitioner or DPP and fitting in the work around an already demanding role. Well, it's good to hear that it was all worth it. Well done for persevering with that episode. I know it was a lot of work to get those audio diaries in. Isabel getting her results live on air was a real highlight. I know, it was tense, wasn't it? I'm not sure I would have done that. No. Now, independent prescribing has been around since 2006 for pharmacists, but it's really picked up pace over the past year. Why is that? Yes, it has. As we heard from Tammy there, an NHS-funded independent prescribing service is set to launch next year in England, much like the ones already in place in Scotland and Wales, and it's possible that some form of prescribing might ultimately be used within the Pharmacy First service too. So to make sure that there are sufficient numbers to provide these services, we need more pharmacists to train as independent prescribers. From 2026, all newly qualified pharmacists will automatically be independent prescribers when they join the register. But that leaves a whole cohort of pharmacists in the existing workforce who will need to do the extra training. Mm -hmm. To begin to address this, NHS England has funded 6,000 places on IP courses during 2022 and 2023. There's also been an increase in the number of funder places offered in Scotland and Wales in the past couple of years. Right, okay. And that's what your podcast focuses on, those pharmacists who are already registered but are now doing the prescribing training. That's but, right, yeah. But for the new cohort of pharmacy students who will emerge as prescribers from the point of registration, how have pharmacy schools been preparing for that? Well, I asked Danny Bartlett at Brighton University, who I interviewed for that episode of the PJ Pod, and he explained that there'll be more clinical placements throughout the undergraduate course and a real focus on clinical decision-making and relating that to practice. Although people may think that students have it easy as they'll graduate as fully-fledged prescribers, actually, as Danny pointed out, it's a double-edged sword because they won't have the experience or perhaps the confidence of pharmacists in the existing workforce. So it's not as straightforward as it seems for students then? No, maybe not. In fact, the PJ hosted an event in July with many of the big names in pharmacy education to discuss how these newly registered pharmacists can be supported to prescribe. Our executive editor for Research and Learning, Michael Dowdle, chaired it. And as luck would have it, he's sat here right now. Yes, he did. Michael, another podcast debut. Thank you. Nice to be here. So that event sounded good. What were your takeaways? Uh, there were a couple of main themes. Uh, having a multidisciplinary team with robust training and support in place was really important. Uh, supporting early prescribing with clinical checking and supervision from other team members was another idea for helping pharmacists gain confidence. That way, new prescribers could ask questions if they weren't sure about a diagnosis. That sounds sensible. Is this already happening anywhere? Yes. Yeah, so as an example, South East London Integrated Care System shared with the group information about its prescribing integration project, which uses the team to support newly qualified pharmacists with prescribing instead of solely relying on DPPs. Oh, interesting. 
Finally, there was a lot of discussion around how prescribers can demonstrate competence and how that works differently in the different sectors of pharmacy, as well as how to make best use of the tools and resources currently available. I'd recommend anyone who hasn't done already takes a look at the report from the roundtable and we'll add a link to the show notes. So hopefully all this preparation will mean that newly trained pharmacists will feel fully prepared to participate in a prescribing service when they graduate, right? That's the idea, but I think in 2024 we need to figure out how pharmacy will manage the limitations presented by the concept of having a scope of practice. Ah, okay. Uh, Currently, pharmacists learn to prescribe with one speciality, but this isn't applicable in community pharmacy, for example, where all kinds of patients can walk in. We might see a solution come from the Pathfinder sites in England or other prescribing pilots, such as the one in southeast London. Uh, This may help remove the potential barriers around the DPP workforce capacity. And you've been working on some resources for this, right? We have, yes. Uh, Avid PJ readers may have seen the start of our new series of learning resources to support pharmacist prescribers develop their knowledge and skills in line with the RPS's framework for all prescribers. It's a collection that we'll be adding to throughout 2024. Again, we'll add a link to this in the show notes. Uh, Anyone who has any ideas or suggestions is also welcome to get in touch with the team at editor at pharmaceutical-journal.com. Lots going in our show notes. Make sure you check those out. Having said that independent prescribing was a major point of conversation in 2023, one of our most popular podcast episodes this year was on de-prescribing. Alex took the lead on this one. Hi, Alex. Hi, Carolyn. Why did you decide to cover this topic? Well, de-prescribing was something we've been talking about within the learning team for quite a while primarily triggered by the publication of the National Overprescribing Review towards the end of 2021, and then seeing how the recommendations were starting to be implemented. Oh, okay. With the number of prescriptions issued each year rising inexorably, the arguments in favour of deprescribing are fairly compelling, but we are also aware of how challenging it can be to deliver it in practice. Yes, and now with all the increased prescribing on the cards too. Exactly. So we wanted to look at the practical side of deprescribing and how pharmacists can work together with patients to get the most from their medicines. Why do you think this was such a popular topic with our listeners? I think there's something quite appealing about the win-win nature of deprescribing when it's done well. If you can spot the opportunity to reduce or stop a medicine that's no longer a net benefit for the patient, then you can potentially improve their quality of life while unlocking lots of efficiencies and cost savings as well as the environmental benefits for the NHS. Medicines use, as we know, being a massive component of the health services carbon footprint. Yes, it is. And with the number of prescriptions continuing to increase year on year and polypharmacy issues becoming more complex, I think pharmacists recognise there's a good case to be made for questioning whether certain prescriptions are actually still right for the patients. So hopefully the podcast tapped into that a little bit. We also had two fantastic guests in Lily Obo and Tony Avery, which may have also been a factor. Absolutely, yes. You drew a crowd with two of the biggest names in deprescribing, which is no small feat considering 2023 was the first year for the PJ Pod's learning episode format. Listeners will have hopefully realized that our podcast offerings have been broken down into essentially three formats the feature episodes, the shorter spotlight episodes based on a story published that month, and the learning episodes, which have specific learning goals. So before I let you go, Alex, rather than getting you to make any predictions... Wait a minute, that's not fair. (laughs) Well, I'll ask you about what we can expect from the learning team next year. Thanks, Carolyn. Glad I dodged that (laughs) bullet. So we definitely expect our resources that Michael mentioned on independent prescribing to continue to expand throughout 2024. We'll also be making lots of improvements to how people can find and use learning resources within the journal 
making it easier to work through topics you're most interested in, in a systematic way. As well as the prescribing hub that Michael mentioned, we've lots of new clinical content planned and we'll be recruiting authors for this in the new year. If any listeners are interested in working with us on these, or if you've got suggestions for topics you'd like to see us cover, please do get in touch. All very exciting. Okay, thank you, Alex. Thanks, Carolyn. Now, if there's one topic we seem to come back to year in and year out, it's shortages and the UK's struggling medicine supply chain. This year has been no different. Listeners may remember back in April, we published this episode on HRT shortages. Transdermal is important because it's a much better way to take HRT. So let me show you which one I take. This is rapidly not becoming my morning routine. I can't speak this morning. My morning routine, this is becoming, this is how you use HRT. But anyway, this is called Estradot. It is the patch, so you just tear off this side. That was TV personality Davina McCall, who's helped normalise talking about the menopause through her documentaries and her campaigning in this area. Over 70% of you said you suffered with brain fog. Brain fog is horrific. I mean, when I had it, I couldn't read autocue, something weird happened to my eyes. That episode was put together by our editor for research and learning, Catherine Soule, and our former data journalist, Julia Robinson. Continuing our reporting on this beat is our new senior clinical reporter and third and final podcast debut, Dave Lepanovic. Dave, great to have you on board. Yeah, happy to be here. Now, were the medicine supply problems as bad this year as they were last year? Uh, We didn't see the same level of panic this year as we have in previous years, but shortages are definitely still a problem for HRT. That's been ongoing for some time. Were there any developments this year? (laughs) Yeah, it appears the Davina effect is still having an impact. Um, But it's an improvement on last year, when at one point I think there were shortages across 30 brands of HRT. Yeah. Uh, It is still a problem though, and that's probably because HRT prescribing in England has increased by 47% over the past year. And not only that, but testosterone prescribing in women has increased tenfold over the past seven years. That sounds like a similar story to one we covered on ADHD medicines in a Spotlight episode. Yeah, absolutely. A national patient safety alert that came out in September warned of shortages of several of the main ADHD medicines because of increasing demand as well as manufacturing issues. The number of people on ADHD medications in England has more than doubled over the past eight years. Wow. And this appears to be just the tip of the iceberg. ADHD charities have said that most people with ADHD still remain undiagnosed. Um, Understandably though, this shortage is having a huge impact on both patients and pharmacists who are trying to source their medicines. Uh, We recently reported on a survey by ADHD UK, which found that 85% of patients on the medicines have been affected by shortages this year. So patients are frustrated, prescribers are frustrated. I think we're all a bit frustrated. Yes, is there any end in sight? That's a really difficult one to predict. Shortages of ADHD medicines from Takeda, one of the main manufacturers we're supposed to resolve in early December. But we've now been told that there may be intermittent disruptions to supplies until April 2024. So unfortunately at this point, it's hard to imagine supply issues going away anytime soon. Yes, uh, sticking with the topic of medicine shortages just a little bit longer, 2023 has been the year of the weight loss injection, which led to its own shortage problem. They seem to have appeared on the market and disappeared just as quickly. What's going on there? Yeah, that's a popular topic, eh? Um, As you can imagine, the demand for these new weight loss wonder drugs have skyrocketed. Um, They are GLP-1 receptor agonists and are traditionally used for treatment of type 2 diabetes. Uh, Over the past couple of years, though, the GLP-1 receptor agonist semaglutide started gaining popularity due to its effectiveness for weight loss. 
This has been an increasing problem for patients who need the treatment for diabetes. These drugs have become so popular that they've even been counterfeit distributed by wholesalers across Europe. Yes, it's important that patients are diligent about where they get their medicines from. Okay, before we move on to your predictions for next year, I'm going to be very unfair and ask you about a prediction that one of us made last year before you joined the team. <laughs> <laughs> we had predicted that 2023 would see more evidence for using psychedelics and mental health. And then we followed that up with a PJ Pod episode on the topic. Here's a clip. The first real profound experience I had was just this sense of being somewhere where I just felt really connected to everything. Just in a place that kind of it almost transcended human language, you know, it was it was somewhere else. It was somewhere I'd never been before. It was beautiful. I remember thinking, you know, depression and anxiety, it doesn't exist here. So, Dave, what's the latest on that? Back in May, there was a discussion in Parliament on psilocybin, the active ingredient of magic mushrooms. But any approval on its use is still a long way off. But in July this year, the Australian regulators permitted the use of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and also MDMA for treatment of PTSD. But a recent story in Australia's ABC News reported that prescribers are confused about how treatment should be administered, who should be able to access it, and how much it should cost, with some suggesting that the regulator's decision was premature given the limited evidence. I see. So it sounds like another area to keep an eye on next yeah, year. very much so. Okay, so on to your 2024 predictions, Dave. What do you have for us? I have a couple of things. Um, my first prediction for 2024 is that smoking cessation treatments will make a big comeback. In fact, actually, in October this year, bupropion made its return, um, confirmed by GSK, and I think that Veronaclean will also make a return next year. Hmm. Also, there's a potential launch of Cytosine, a new player, which has been a very effective smoking cessation drug in Europe for a very long time. Everyone loves a bit of competition, so it should be quite exciting. Yes. I also think the government will tighten its regulations on disposable vapes to limit children's access, which has been a massive concern this year. Okay, so smoking cessation, that's your big prediction. Yeah, but I do have another one. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> my second prediction is on the continuous struggle of aseptic services. The demand for chemotherapy is increasing each year, while workforce numbers are on the decline. For patients, this has resulted in some waiting months for their treatment. The government has announced plans to set up these big centralised aseptic units to increase capacity by tenfold, which sounds great, but the first five aren't set to open until 2027. That's ages away. As far. There's also a government consultation underway on changes to legislation that would allow pharmacy technicians to supervise the preparation, assembly, and dispensing of medications in hospital aseptic facilities, easing workforce pressures in aseptic units. So, my second prediction is that aseptic services will have to show their resilience a little while longer. Kia kaha to all the oncology service providers. Hang in there. Kia kaha? Yeah, that just means stay strong in Māori. Oh, okay, right. Thanks for that, Dave. Thanks, Carolyn. And thank you to the whole team for producing some fantastic journalism this year. It's been a great year for the PJ Pod. We've published 14 episodes, a few of which you've heard snippets of just now. You can find the rest wherever you found this one. I also want to thank all the wonderful experts who've given their time to come on the pod this year, and to all our loyal listeners who like, subscribe, or follow us. We've made our predictions for Pharmacy in 2024, but please do tell us what we've missed. Let us know on social media using the hashtag PJPod 
or email us at editor at pharmaceutical-journal.com. Just before I let you go, if you're interested in becoming a prescriber, need advice on how to find a DPP, or are currently working as a prescriber and looking to expand your scope of practice, the RPS has produced a range of resources to help you practice safely and confidently. RPS members can access these materials from the dedicated prescribing pages on the RPS website. We'll include a link to these in the show notes as well. If you're not a member, you can join the RPS for the equivalent of just 60p per day. That's good value. <laughs> just search RPS membership to find out more. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Are there any mince pies left? Yeah, tons. <laughs> there we go.